0: um isaiah chapter 6 and i know we're in chapter 7 but uh there's some things i want to kind of lead you through just to set up the context of what we're talking about this morning as we kick off our advent season isaiah chapter 6 records for us isaiah's commissioning by god into his ministry now you might recall in chapter 1 that isaiah tells us his time of prophecy extended through the kingdom or through the kings of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So quite a long line of kings there in in Israel. It is thought that he was put to death by the son of Hezekiah, Manasseh was his name, but his call to his ministry as a prophet is given to us in chapter 6, which is recorded for us, as it says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. King Uzziah's reign lasted for 52 years, and he was a very popular king in the eyes of the people, and a king Israel really supported and got behind. He started his reign when he was just 16 years old. And can you imagine having the weight of an entire nation on your shoulders at 16? God's hand was on his life. Now, Israel was split at the, time of his, uh, at the time of this record into two territories. Ten tribes were separated to the north and two tribes to the south. Uzziah was king over the southern territories of Judah, which consisted of the tribes of Judah and Levi. Now, his reign resulted in great military advancement and great prosperity. He developed a state-of-the-art water system, which enlarged their agricultural areas. They enlarged their land by moving into the territory of the Philistines, something they could not achieve in the rule of the previous administrations before Uzziah. Uzziah tore down the walls of Gath. Now, you might recognize Gath. That was where uh, Goliath was from. Uh, He tore down the walls of Gath and Ashdod the great Philistine fortress and stronghold at the time. Uzziah's standing army consisted of 310,000 men with advancements in war weaponry, uh, the likes no one uh, had ever seen before. He built huge slings to hurl great stones, kind of like what you would see in the Lord of the Rings. Um, He strengthened the nation mightily, which resulted in the people feeling very secure and comfortable during his reign. Uzziah's name and his fame spread abroad from the north to the area of Tyre, which is up near Lebanon area, all the way down south to Egypt. And everybody had heard of him, and everyone was talking about him. He was all over every social media channel there was. The reason for this was simple. Uzziah sought the Lord as God. And we read in 2 Chronicles 26.5, And as long as Uzziah sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. He was a prosperous king. He was a popular king. He was held in great confidence among the people because of all that he had been able to accomplish. Now the people came to trust and rely upon him a great deal. In fact, too much, as is often the case with a good popular leader. The people began to trust him in a way uh in a way that was um, idolatrous and they got their eyes off of the lord and that's what happens when the lord gives us great leaders right we begin to put our trust in man and not in the lord and oftentimes the lord will remove that man that we've relied on too much and get him out of the picture out of the scene in a sense in order that we might get our eyes back on the lord Such was the case with Uzziah. So, in order to understand chapter 7, which is what we're in this morning, and to grasp the true nature of the prophecy of the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, we must understand that chapter 6 is a trajectory that Isaiah had the experience uh, when he had the vision of the Lord that he saw. It's very significant that he would say, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord saw the Lord prior to that Isaiah's trust and eyes were on Uzziah but God gives him the bigger picture the better throne the better throne the real true throne Uzziah was a good and popular king things are going well there's a lot of prosperity yet when things are good we seem to forget about the Lord we forget our dependence upon him in our everyday lives So, when trouble comes and we're forced to get on our knees and pray, that we seek him out. Now, in Isaiah's mind, with Uzziah dead, he thought the throne was empty and void. I mean, Uzziah's son is not the same as his dad, and surely not as capable, for sure. The northern kingdom of Israel is going down the toilet, anarchy is beginning to reign. One king after another is being assassinated. There was massive confusion. The southern kingdom is in danger of being wiped out. What are we going to do? Isaiah must have thought. Uzziah's dead. The throne's empty. But Isaiah received a vision, a vision of the Lord in which he realized that the throne is not empty. Oh, how important it is for us to realize that God is on the throne, that God is ruling over the affairs of our lives, that God is ruling over the affairs of the world. We are so prone to anxiety, especially in this time of COVID and all that's going on around us. When we see the world's conditions. And as you just look at the things that are happening in the world today, it's enough to scare any sane man and give him a heart attack. But if you look beyond and realize, hey, you know what? God is on the throne. He's ruling. He's reigning. God is in control. And therefore I can rest. I can rest, I can sleep at night only because I know that God is in control. I know that God is sitting upon the throne. So important that we realize that God is upon the throne. In our lives, God rules, He reigns, and that's an important thing. Now we get to chapter 7 where Ahaz is reigning. He was a far cry from Uzziah. In fact, he was an evil, evil person. He sacrificed his own son in the fires of Molech. Children in that society were seen as a burden and they were actually devalued as human beings. So Molech was a god made in the image with a human body and an animal's head. And people would commit sexual immorality in groups around an idol of the goddess of Ashtoreth, which was partly the goddess of fertility. And she was also the goddess of pleasure. The baby's birth from those abominations were placed in the brazen hot arms of Molech to be burned alive and sacrificed, and so to preserve the people's perverted sense of independence from raising children. Does that sound familiar? Sacrificing children in order to keep their, their right to live that they wanted to live. And that's the way it is when we begin to devalue human life, devalue image bearers of God. Um, we discard them out of any sense of my right to myself. And we justify image bearers of God as less than human. Ahaz also stripped the temple of gold and bronze in order to pay off the king of Assyria. Don't get it mixed up with Syria, they're two different nations. He stripped the temple completely of its gold and valuables to pay off the king of Assyria for protection. From King Rezin from Syria uh, and and Syria and it, oh, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Syria and Assyria are two different countries. Instead of trusting in the Lord as Uzziah had done, Ahaz was unrepentant and wanted to go the way of the pagan northern kingdom. He was single handedly destroying Judah. He closed the schools and the houses of worship so that no instruction would be possible and that the glory of God should abandon the land of Israel, or abandon the land of Judah. It was for this reason that Isaiah had to teach in secret, though Ahaz had also humbly submitted to the prophet's, prophets' rebukes, his only redeeming feature. So you may be asking, Brett, what does this have to do with Advent? Well, let's pick up the story and see. In the days of Ahaz, verse 1, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Verse 2, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Second Chronicles uh, 28 documents the scene of this invasion. Though Israel was unsuccessful against, it, against attacking it, on Judah there was great loss and great damage done. Rezin, the king of Syria, and, and I'll just call him Pekon, it's easier. Uh, <laughs> king of Israel were working to form an alliance to strengthen themselves uh, against the powerful nation of Assyria. In fact, the Bible tells us that Assyria would eventually invade, take over, and deport the Jews to their land. The Jews would then intermarry with the Assyrians and integrate into their society. And listen to this. When they came back to the land of Israel, they were half-breeds, half Assyrian, half-Jews. And they eventually became what we know today as Samaritans. Can you imagine the feathers that Jesus ruffled when he told the story of the good Samaritan. And it's so important to realize when Jesus makes us his own and he is bringing us into a good place, that the enemy of our lives will begin to organize. The Bible says in Ephesians 6 that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of the air. The devil is highly organized and highly efficient and he knows the word of God and doctrine better than we do, better than most of us. And he will form alliances through different people in your life to invade your relationship with God and to throw you off. The devil is at war with you because he's at war with God and will do whatever it takes to slow you down discourage you, make you doubt God's promises and goodness. You see, he can't take your salvation away from you, but he can take your joy. He can take your joy. And he can cause you to be ineffective in your walk with Jesus. He will cause you to focus on yourself rather than the Lord. Though there are resins and picos forming alliances and coming after you, God knows this. He knows this. He's not surprised by it. In fact, it's an opportunity for you to put your trust in him. It's an opportunity for your faith to grow. It's an opportunity to stand on his promises and say, my joy is in my king. Don't let the devil steal what rightfully belongs to you in Christ. Jesus gave you the right to become his child. John 1 12. Now stand firm and rest. So when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook like trees in the wind. Ephraim was the largest, most dominant tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. So Ephraim was synonymous with the northern nation. When Ahaz got wind of this northern alliance forming, they were shaking in their boots. They were scared. The nation was scared to death and they knew trouble was just right around the corner. Ahaz and the southern kingdom were degrading morally, and they knew it. But God allowed them to be scared so that they would turn back to him. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, how I thank God that he gets my attention when I'm away from him. I'm so glad that Jesus brings me to a place of healthy fear so that I will put my trust back on him. The Lord does his best work in my heart when I have a healthy fear. A healthy fear. And two things happen when I have a healthy fear. Number one is I lose my appetite for sin. I don't want to do it. And number two, I become dependent upon the Lord, upon Jesus. And those are good things. In fact, it says in Proverbs ten twenty seven. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Proverbs 1 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Psalm 111 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding and his praise endures forever. Verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and share Jeshub Jeshub, your son at the end of the conduit of the upper pool highway to the washer's field. Or some of your Bibles might say Fuller's field. Now, share Jeshub, which is Isaiah's son, means a remnant shall return. And suggests both judgment, God's people will be reduced to a remnant, and grace that that remnant will return. God tells Isaiah that Ahaz was at the end of a specific aqueduct just outside of Jerusalem. No doubt Ahaz was probably inspecting the city's water supply, probably calculating how long they could endure a siege from the coming invasion. It's interesting that this place is an object lesson to Ahaz. This is the place where people did their laundry and they washed their garments. And the Ahaz's soul was filthy and he needed to repent and have his soul cleansed. And as Ahaz's heart wavered, so did the hearts of the people. And isn't that the case with you and me? How we respond to adversity is how our children or those whom we lead will respond. Now to Ahaz, uh, to Ahaz, but Isaiah comes in an assuring message from the Lord. He commands, listen, he commands not suggest to Ahaz four things he must do to have peace and to believe. He says, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. What Ahaz needed was not just outer resolution of this problem. What he needed was inner peace. And how would Ahaz find it? By believing God's promise that Judah's enemies would be defeated. Faith in God's promises is the only way to find peace in the midst of trouble. In fact, it says in Isaiah 26.3, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Now, there is always there's always pressures in our lives, work pressures, family pressures, now COVID pressures, job pressures. We have pressure all around us. And there's two ways of handling pressure. Let me illustrate. One is illustrated by what's called a bathysphere. It's a miniature submarine used to explore the deepest parts of the ocean so deep that the pressure would crush a conventional submarine like an aluminum can. Bathyspheres compensate plate steel several inches thick, which keeps water out, but also makes them heavy and hard to maneuver. But then then when you get to the ocean depths and you turn on the lights of that submarine, what do you see? You see fish 20,000 feet down. These fish cope with extreme pressure in an entirely different way. They don't build thick skins. They remain supple and free. They compensate for the outside pressure through equal and opposite pressure inside themselves. Now, isn't that an apropos picture? When we stand on the promises of the word, the pressure equals that of the outside pressure, and we're able to walk in freedom and joy. We don't have to have hard and thick skins as long as we appropriate God's power to equal the pressure without. And when under pressure, you don't need to develop a thick skin. All you need is to stand on God's promises for your life. To pressurize your soul in the midst of the pressure without. Hebrews eleven six says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews eleven six. Hebrews three twelve says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an un- evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And verse 6 tells us why Israel and Syria wanted to invade Judah to force their hand in joining them and set up a puppet king named Tabeel to Ahaz, Reason and Pekah were flamethrowers but to God they were just smoldering firebrands or burned out stumps the lord was encouraging ahaz not to believe that their or to believe that their plans would not succeed and god was true to his word in fact both men died 2 years later in 732 bc Aram and Israel threatened to invade Judah, split it up between the two conquering nations and set up a puppet king. In fact, Isaiah made the startling prophecy that within 65 years, Israel will no longer even be a people because they would be so shattered. Isaiah gave this prophecy in 734 BC and 65 years later, 669 BC is when it happened. And when Assyria conquered Syria and then Israel in 722, many Israelites were deported to other lands by Assyria. And foreigners were brought into Samaria. Now pay attention to the last phrase there in verse 9. Look at it with me. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. After all that Isaiah told Ahaz... After all that he explained that the plans of Rezin and Pekah will not succeed. Remember, this is an evil king and God is encouraging this evil king. It's not going to work out for them. Ahaz had a decision he had to make. He tells them, you can either be firm in your faith or you won't be firm at all. Here's what that means for you and me. You see, God will do in our lives all that he has promised, whether we believe it or not. I mean, that's the gospel, right? He will, he, will, he will fulfill his promises as he says. However, how I respond to him will determine whether I'm stable or not. If I am in a state of unbelief, then I will have anxiety, depression. I'll be freaked out and I'll be unstable. And unbelief is connected to unstableness. The more I simply believe God, the more stable I will become. I know it sounds obvious, but sometimes the obvious needs to be stated for us, right? The Lord will take care of the problems that I'm not able to take care of because he's merciful. He comes to this evil King Ahaz and he says, I want to be merciful to you. I'm going to take care of the problem. Oh, that God would help us really believe and trust him to resolve our difficulties, to just let them go and rest. That we would be a people that when the world sees us in the midst of our own turmoil and our own conflict, that they would see us as relaxed, calm, and joyful. And joyful. If you will not be firm in faith, you won't won't be firm at all. And boy, isn't that a message to us? Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord, your God, let it be as deep as Sheol or hell, another word for hell, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. So after the Lord promised Ahaz that the northern invasion would fail, he asks, God says, hey, ask a sign. Ask anything you want that what I just told you is true. I will even manifest it outwardly so that you'll be encouraged. It can be as high or as low as you want. The Lord wanted to strengthen the king's faith. By offering this sign. But what does Ahaz do? He gives the pious religious answer. I will not put God to the test. He was already secretly allied with Assyria, so he puts on this religious front. He hypocritically pretended that he was deterred from asking a sign by religious fear of tempting the Lord. But why? Because Ahaz knew that if he did this, if he really believed what Isaiah was saying, he would be forced to break off his alliance with Assyria and move the nation to prayer and praise. This would have shown weakness on his part. But deep down, I believe Ahaz still didn't believe Isaiah. I think he was afraid to believe that it was true, that this invasion wasn't going to happen. This is called false humility. It's a reverse sense of pride. It's false pride. It has the appearance of submission, but it does not truly obey God. It uses religious terms to justify cruel or questionable behavior, but a humble person refuses to use spiritual-sounding words as a smokescreen for sin. It admits small sins, but it will ignore major sins. But a humble person admits sin and also receives an honest rebuke, no matter how lowly the source. False humility professes love for God and neighbor, but acts in a cruel manner. But a humble person is consistent between What she says and what she does, or he says and he does. A person with false humility uh, delights in debate rather than dialogue. Oh man, this one nailed me yesterday. But a humble person sees conversation as a two-way street with much to learn, not as a battle to win or lose. Verse 13. So now here's where we get to the Advent part, right? And he said, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Notice there that God doesn't address Ahaz. He addresses the entire house of David. Boy, you wear men out, but you are also wearing God's patience out as well. And whether Ahaz wanted a sign or not, the Lord was going to give a sign whether he wanted one or not whether he wanted one or not. And furthermore, the sign would not be for Ahaz's benefit, but rather for the benefit of the whole house of David and for us. Note that this sign would be given by the Lord himself. The sign would be that of a virgin who would bear a son named Emmanuel. Of course, we may assume that this sign had an immediate fulfillment, right? For the king and Uh, and of the people that day. Most likely, this was Isaiah's second wife who had a son. Nobody knows. There's a lot of debate among scholars that when Isaiah's son was born, possibly, that this whole business with invasion ended, that the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed and Assyria came in and invaded. God with us. Throughout the years, while the child grew into manhood, people would be reminded of God's promise to always be with them if they would just simply trust him. Note that the child would be reared in poverty, raised during a time when only curds of milk and honey were available for food. There would be so few people left in the land, there would be an abundance of it, just for those few people. But even more wonderful wonderful is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, which is given to the people of all generations. And it finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary. What a wonderful Savior we have. That this has a dual fulfillment. In fact, if you you, uh, look at a Jewish mind, they don't see prophecies as events. They see them as patterns. And this is a dual fulfillment that Jesus Christ would be born as a human being. Think about that. Would you become a cockroach to save all the other cockroaches? And yet look at what Jesus did for his love for us. His love for us. To become a man. To be to incarnate. To become flesh. It's, it's absolutely mind-blowing. That he would become flesh. So that his perfect flesh would be used as a sacrifice. To win us back. Praise the Lord. The Lord will bring upon you, verse 17. And upon your people and upon your father's house. Such days that have not come. So now. He's going to talk about the judgment that's going to happen in Israel In not believing God. In verses 17 through 19, he said that God would send the king of Assyria as a means of judgment. And isn't it interesting that Ahaz puts all his stock in Assyria. He aligns with him. He sets up an alliance with him. He colludes with him. But it backfires. It totally backfired on him years later. And isn't it interesting, if we choose to trust man over God, then man will eventually rule over us than the Lord. Let me say it again. If we choose to trust in man over God, then man will eventually rule over us rather than God. We will find ourselves oppressed and weighed down And it's only when I rest in the Lord and put my confidence in him that I will truly be free. Judah from this day on would always be troubled by the Assyrian Empire. Now, God's hand was in all of this for sure. uh, And he controlled all of the events. But still, because of an unrepentant people, he allowed the Assyrians to harass them. There was a passenger in a taxi. He leaned over, they were driving somewhere, and he leaned over to ask the driver a question. And he gently tapped him on the shoulder to get his attention. The driver screamed, lost control of the cab, and nearly hit a bus and drove up over the curb. And stopped just inches from a large plate window. For a few moments, everything was silent in the cab. Then the shaking driver said, are you okay? I'm so sorry, but you scared the daylights out of me. The badly shaken passenger apologized to the driver and said, I didn't realize that a mere tap on the shoulder would startle someone so badly. The driver replied, Oh, no, no, no. I'm the one who's sorry. It's entirely my fault. Today is my first day of driving a cab, and I've been driving a hearse for 25 years. (laughs) See, this illustrates how we operate. When we trust those around us carrying us with dead men relying on them to protect us. But it's like driving a hearse. But when God touches us on the shoulder, says, hey, trust me, I'll take care of this. And we freak out. So in that day, verse 20, the Lord will shave with a razor and that is a hired beyond the river. The king of Assyria and he goes on. Judah would be humiliated by Assyria as God uses the analogy of a razor there. Syria will shave Judah's hair, which was a major form of embarrassment and distress in that day. And the abundance of milk would be for so few people left. Honey would also be abundant because of the wild flowers, which would grow in desolate fields, and bees swarm will be more plentiful. And this would fulfill the sign given by Ahaz, by Isaiah. He'll eat curds. And honey. So, the sign of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ came at a very tumultuous time in Israel. A very tumultuous time. And we live in a tumultuous time now. And I think it lends itself to look upon our Savior's birth as prophesied here in Isaiah 7. So, as we head into this Advent season, what do we take away from this passage about the sign of the birth of our Savior? How are we to believe? How are we to live? How does this incarnation affect us in the everyday? I would suggest to you that you and I are Ahaz in the story. We have and do all the same tendency that he is and does. But God deals with us as he did with Ahaz with such grace and mercy. That God's promises for us in Christ do not depend on what we do or don't. They depend on his faithfulness for you and his faithfulness to himself. He loves you in spite of you. And it's amazing when you think about that. That your salvation and him leading you all the way to to his presence till the day you die is based on his performance, not yours. And that started at the cross, and it's not done yet. Like Ahaz, we tend to rely on others more than the Lord. But behold, the virgin has conceived. And his name is Emmanuel. And he is always pursuing you and bringing you back to safety and security. He is always looking to secure your peace. Like Ahaz, we have a tendency to treat the people we lead, like our children, co-workers, some friends, families, acquaintances. We have a tendency to treat them poorly. But behold, the virgin has conceived, and his name is Emmanuel, and he will never treat us the way we treat others. He loves us. His love is consistent, steadfast, and unwavering. Like Ahaz, we tend to weary God. We can. But behold, the virgin has conceived. His name is Emmanuel, and he will never leave us nor forsake us, and he will never stop loving us no matter how unfaithful we are to him. Like Ahaz, we have a tendency to have anxiety and prepare for the worst. But behold, the virgin has conceived. His name is Emmanuel, and he will always deliver us according to his faithful promises. He is merciful and kind and will show those around you how faithful he is. Like Ahaz, we have enemies that are have formed alliances against us. But behold, the virgin has conceived. His name is Emmanuel, and he is our shield and our protector. He already has your situation in hand. You need not be afraid. You can rest. And like Ahaz, we are sinners, born into a depraved nature with no hope at war with God. But behold, the virgin has conceived. His name is Emmanuel, and he grew up, and he went to the the cross and spilled his precious blood, which frees you from all sin, all condemnation, And all penalty. You were his enemy. But now because of the holes in his hands and his feet and the scars in his brow and on his back. You are now called a friend of God and a child of God. That's what Advent means. That behold the virgin has conceived and he bore a child and called his name Emmanuel. And he came and died in your place. So you can rest. Will you rest in his faithfulness today? Let's pray. Father God, the way that you went about to rescue us is mind blowing. Lord, I know I wouldn't have done it that way, but thank God it wasn't me because I would have messed it up. But thank you. Jesus, that you became one of us to lead us home. Please bless people here today with your word and your grace. And let this Advent season in 2020, which is a year we would all like to forget, let this be the best ever. Lord, do a work in our hearts and lives that would blow our minds. Thank you, Lord, for all the blessings. Thank you for your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.